You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 128. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Great to be here with you. I am running solo today in this episode that falls within our business immigration series. Today, I'm going to talk about C10, and then I think Alicia should be joining me in, uh, in the next episode. She was out and about, and so I said, no worries, the show must go on, so you've got me as a solo here. Now, C10 work permits fit within the International Mobility Program. And uh, what I want to talk about in this episode is give you a little bit of insight by turning back the curtain, I guess. Now, this primary source document is the program delivery instructions. And anyone who's going to be filing a C10 work permit application must go to the government website and just take a look at those uh, delivery instructions. Because this is what officers are looking at when they are trying to assess whether or not the work permit you're, you know, basically you're applying for is of such importance that you don't need to get a labor market impact assessment. So that's really what we're focusing on today. Now, like I said, we're going to cover, I'll introduce it a little bit. I'll give you kind of an example, some examples of how I've used it in my practice. But a C10 is really kind of when all else fails. It's a, it's a work permit application that is kind of a catch-all where the benefits, the significant benefits, thus the name, of granting this work permit are so, so important and so beneficial for Canada generally that, you know, we're not going to make the employer go through and obtain a labor market impact assessment for it. So I'll go over, uh, first we'll talk a little bit about C10s generally, then we'll look at the eligibility factors and the documentation that I like to include and kind of the process involved in applying for them. We'll dive deeper into what significant benefit is and specifically address the various areas, the the economic, the social, the cultural benefits, because the program delivery instructions do provide a little bit of insight that you can use to help inform your submissions as counsel when you're applying for these types of work permits. Um, And then we'll talk a little bit about what officers see on their end and the things that they're keyed in on in your application. And if you know that, you know why the questions are being asked, you know what officers are looking for, then you can make sure you're giving them exactly what they need to make that positive decision. And then we'll finish off with some of the unique situations or you know, IRCC calls them real world examples that are sometimes uh, um, so straightforward that you know they're just recognized that this is an area where significant benefit work permit should be issued. But to start off with, understand that this this work permit is really designed to fill in the gaps. It's kind of like the gravy on the mashed potatoes. Although, I'll be honest, it's really hard to make the gravy. (laughs) In other words, you know, if this is kind of a catch-all, it's not something that, that 
the officers are encouraged to issue. So you've got your work cut out for you. All right, let me pull out just a few little background snippets from the program delivery instructions that I think you will really, um, you'll really want to hear and you'll really want to pay attention to, and I want to highlight them. So it starts off by saying that the International Mobility Program lets employers hire temporary workers without an LMIA, where there are broader, and this is key, economic, cultural, or other competitive advantages for Canada, or there are reciprocal benefits enjoyed by Canadians and permanent residents. Sound familiar? So all of these work permits, including C-10, are really designed to offer avenues to, to issue work permits without the need for an LMIA because there are other broader benefits flowing to Canada. And um, so this work permit falls within our 205A, you know, Section 205A of the Immigration Refugee Protection Regulations. And it's intended to provide officers with flexibility so that when they face these unique situations where really a work permit just needs to be issued and the company doesn't have or it just doesn't make sense to make them go through an LMIA process, that's what this is for. So the flexibility is given to officers to respond um, to situations where, and this is key, the employment activities of the foreign national would create or maintain significant social, cultural, or economic benefits or opportunities for Canadian citizens. And, and this is really the key. They want to see that there is a benefit, not just to the person or the company that's seeking the work permit, but that there is some other, um, you know, some other benefit that, that's significant that flows to Canadians generally. And the officers are instructed that these decisions are to be made on a case-by-case basis. And whenever you hear that, that means that, well, it's positive and it's negative. The, the positive is that you can make your case. You know, and, uh, you know, even in situations where you think, hmm, is this going to work? Well, if you're creative and you have, you know, fantastic advocacy skills and you have the ability to formulate your, you know, your submissions in a persuasive manner, well, you may just be able to get an application approved for your particular client where someone else, maybe not in the exact situation, but a similar one who, who does not present as good of a case is going to get it rejected. And I guess, for all intents and purposes, that's the entire immigration process, right? But more so than not, because it's case by case, you've got an ability to advocate. Now, with that being said, that vast discretion gives officers a wide leeway to just say, mm, I'm not satisfied. Because even if, you know, the, the fewer requirements you have for entry, you know, the more flexibility there is for an officer to say, mm, I'm still not satisfied. I'm still not satisfied. Right. So I'll give you an example. Once I had a client and I was filing a spousal sponsorship for them. And this was back in the days when I had a traditional practice, like most of you out there, whether you're immigration lawyers or consultants. And I had paralegals and assistants who assisted me in compiling packages and putting things together. And I would review them and then I would trust them that they would get the proper documents in, you know, and <clears throat> when I did my review, that after they photocopied everything, nothing would be missing. But in this case, it was a spousal sponsorship and there was a document that was missing. I had reviewed it. Everything was fine. But in the course of copying the application before it got sent out, somehow a document slipped through. And in this case, the spouse, it was an in-Canada spousal sponsorship and um, the Canadian citizen who was sponsoring his U.S. spouse, she was on a work permit. Um, I think it was through SWAP, one of the Canada... Uh, U.S. student work abroad programs. And, um, and so she uh, was uh, working in Canada and by filing the spousal sponsorship, this was in the old days when we could include a work permit with it, um, she was able to 
basically be, uh, benefit or maintain status and keep working. Well, unfortunately, the moment that spousal sponsorship application got returned, her work authorization came to an end because the work permit was included with it. And then we were in a pickle. Yeah. And needless to say, I was not too happy with that particular assistant. And uh, at the end of the day, the responsibility was fully mine. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't her fault, you know, um, I guess to this extent I should have gone through and looked at it again in the package before it got sent out. But anyways, these things happen. And so the client wasn't terribly happy. And so what do you do? Well, what had happened was the Canadian had purchased a tanning salon and his wife, the subject of the sponsorship, was managing it. So effectively, we have a tanning salon manager, right? And she employed a couple Canadians, kind of part-time, and it was a small little tanning shop here on the west side of Lethbridge. And uh, so I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, what am I going to do? She's clearly eligible for sponsorship. We just botched it and didn't include the, you know, we missed a document in the package and it got returned. So what do we do? So I thought, well, mm, what else? We could, you know, I could try C10. So understand, this is a C10 for a tanning salon manager. So we went through the process of preparing the application. I put every single thing I could think of in that application, including how they had, you know, um, you know, contributed to various functions at the University of Lethbridge, how, you know, they were strong, you know, supporters of the community and giving back to the community that if she lost her job, the Canadians would also, they'd have to close the tanning salon down and the Canadians would lose their jobs. I put in everything, including she's eligible for PR and we're doing it. We just, there was a mistake and we have to refile and please help. So which they flew out to Vegas and flew back into Calgary and a very, very kind officer there um, uh, reviewed the package, recognized the realities of the situation, right? Like she is clearly going to be eligible for permanent residence. The relationship was genuine, all those kinds of things. And in the end, um, very graciously agreed to grant the C10 work permit, much to my unbelievable joy and celebration. Now, would this type of a situation work for just any tanning salon manager? Well, probably not. You know, the circumstances that she was married to a Canadian already played a huge factor and that for all intents and purposes, she, you know, was, was running a business that was creating jobs for Canadians. See, and I pulled in everything I possibly could and I'm just touching just the, the very thinnest layer of what we put into that application. But, but that's just an example of, of being creative in circumstances where normally you'd say, well, seriously, a C10 is not built for that. So lots of circumstances, case by case is what I'm trying to get at. All right. But the program delivery instructions tell the officers that circumstances sometimes present officers with situations where an LMIA is not available and there is no specific exemption category. But, and this is key, the balance of practical considerations would indicate that the work of the foreign national would be a significant benefit to Canada, economically, socially, or culturally. And, you know, and they just reemphasize that uh, Section 205A of, of the regulations is intended to provide an officer with the flexibility to respond to these types of situations. So just to lay the foundation here, um, this is a work permit that, is, uh, is, is available to help remedy certain situations where it's really important that the person's here, okay? All right, let's jump in and take a look at a little bit about the, you know, I want to provide a little bit of an overview. So you need to understand the context in which the officers are looking at this. So the, the PDIs are specific instructions, not just on what the eligibility requirements are, 
but how an officer should approach these applications. And uh, right built in, baked in, is this, you know, in kind of bold highlighted letters, it says, this authority should not be used for the sake of convenience, nor in any other manner that would undermine or try to circumvent the importance of the LMIA in the work permit process. Rather, it is intended to address situations where, once again, the significant social, cultural, or economic benefits to Canada of issuing the work permit are so clear and compelling that the importance of the LMI process can be overcome. And, you know, they also emphasize that the impact on the labor market should be neutral or positive with the issuance of the work permit. And so if they say this, and this is what's being, you know, officers, how they're being directed to approach these types of work permits, then you had better address these issues. Um, And then uh, it goes on to say, when considering an LMIA exemption for the issuance of a work permit, officers should keep in mind this general principle. This ain't no general principle. This is like the overriding principle. A foreign national to work in Canada. So, so uh, let me take a step back here. I got ahead of myself. Um, that when considering an LMI exemption for the issuance of the work permit, officers should keep in mind the general principle that authorizing a foreign national to work in Canada has an impact on the labor market and economy. And officers, and this is another key point, should be reluctant to issue a work permit without essentially an LMIA. And, uh, you know, which shows that, you know, the, the job offer and the person isn't going to be taking jobs away from Canadians. So, so that's kind of the underlying basis upon, you know, the, the, the actual adjudication of these. So keep that in mind. Officers instructed to be very, very frugal when issuing these types of work permits. Okay. Let's hit on the documents. So this process goes through the employer portal, like all of the international mobility programs. So the employer, you need an employer supporting your worker. It's not something you can just do on your own. There has to be an employer portal registration and uh, an A number issued. And the employer, um, within the context of the application, um, once they've got that all registered, they pay the $230 fee, then it's now up to the individual or you know the employer, if they're helping them, obviously, to put together the package. So what does IRCC ask? What are they looking for? Well, it's pretty bare bones. So proof that the employer compliance fee was paid, Okay, well, you need to do that to get the A number. Detailed evidence of how the foreign nationals work provides a significant benefit economically, socially, or culturally. That's it. Okay, that's it. Well, I'm, I'm being kind of a little bit, you know, obviously, if you're going, if you're playing at a port of entry, well, there's lots of flexibility in what your package looks like, as we've talked about in previous um, episodes of our business immigration series here. Um, obviously visa offices have their own requirements for forms and documents and things like that. But generally speaking, the core of a C10 is really this open-ended request for you to prove it, prove that there's a significant benefit. And so, um, they do note that a simple copy and paste from the department's website is not, is not sufficient evidence. So it's important that you go and take a look at the department's website, use it to inform your submission because the officers are looking for those specific factors, but you do not want to just copy and paste the actual language in there and stick it into your submission. Um, and, uh, you know, and just expect that that's going to be enough. No, it's not. Yes. You need to address each of the factors that the officers are looking for in terms of significant benefit, but at the same time, you have to make darn sure 
that, uh, that it's not just a carbon copy, but I think most of us know that by now. Okay, let's take a look at really what this is all about, and that's a significant benefit. Okay, so let's start with economic benefits. So they do provide some examples, which is very, very beneficial. And remember, the key here is that the economic benefits are not just flowing to the company, although they may be a factor in it. You need to look at more broadly flowing benefits. You know, if someone's coming in for an important project for a company, there isn't time to get an LMIA, uh, but you you want to bring them in because they're going to be overseeing or managing an aspect of the project that in turn has a number of subcontractors and every, you know, other companies, maybe it's a joint venture where everybody is relying on this person to, to continue moving forward with a certain aspect of the project. Now they don't have to be the CEO. Maybe they're an important, they serve an important managerial function or, a, you know, in a, in a, a highly um, critical or sensitive role within a component of the overall project. As long as you can show that if they're not there, then this is the harm. The project's going to be delayed. There's going to be, you know, uh, people that are, are going to be out of work, those kinds of things, right? That's economic benefit, not just, well, you know, I guess they're when you and we're just talking about economic right now. We'll get to social and, and cultural benefits, but but you can sometimes they intermingle. Like let's say this person is coming in to manage a project that yes is worth millions of dollars, but maybe it's a directional pipe that provides water to a community on Vancouver Island or something like that. Fresh water, who knows what it is, right? And so you can point out very clearly that the efforts that uh, this person is making will have, you know, broad broad benefits, and that. They're significant. All right. So they give some examples and, and I, I go through these and I'll kind of touch on a brief, a few of them, but let your creative juices flow when you think about these. Okay. What's analogous to this? Is there something that's similar to this type of an example that IRCC has laid out? If they've put an example on their website, then folks, you need to recognize that if, if you can make your fact pattern as similar to the one that they're describing or the scenario, this, you know, as similar as possible to what they've described, then you're going to have a whole lot greater opportunity to see your application get approved. Okay, so significant economic benefits to Canada could include preventing the disrupt the disruption of employment for Canadians or permanent residents. Okay, check. We've talked about that. Uh, using their considerable work experience in negotiating and concluding business transactions that would benefit the Canadian economy, advancing Canadian industry through market expansion, job creation, and product or service innovation. So you've got someone that has very specialized skill sets that are going to be transmitted or transferred to um, not only a Canadian company that can help to advance an industry in a new way, that's where the creativity flows. But also, so not just, you know, advancing and creating, but also preventing a disruption to, say, a Canadian, a major Canadian event with implications for jobs or, or growth. And those events could be something that's it's an, an event economically and an event culturally or socially. So, you know, maybe they're coming up for this big major conference. Um, and conferences probably are not a good way of describing it just because generally those tend to be work exempt type of things. But you, you get what I'm talking about here. Um, and then, of course, other examples, creating employment or training opportunities for Canadians, providing economic stimulus in remote areas. Oh, they love remote areas, you guys. So if you have an opportunity to uh, to demonstrate how it's going to help with a rural community or it's going to help with smaller communities outside of the major ones, 
um, that's pretty persuasive, pretty powerful. And maybe the fact that my tanning salon manager was in West Lethbridge, where I live here in Alberta, where the population of, of Lethbridge is not even 100,000, you know, and uh, maybe the maybe that played a role in it, right? Versus a tanning salon in, say, downtown Toronto or something. I don't know. But these are all factors that come into play. So that's economic. Just keep that kind of floating around in your mind. Okay, next thing is... Um, is social benefit. So when it comes to assessing or determining what social benefit, um, you know, a significant social benefit, these are some of the examples they give. So officers should examine whether the person's presence in Canada is crucial to an event and whether circumstances have created urgency to the person's entry. Or the foreign national's work will provide significant external benefits to other third parties not directly involved in the transaction. And you can see how they describe this as social. Well, that could easily be economic. So don't get pigeonholed into thinking, okay, these are the economic benefits I'm going to list. These are the social benefits. You know, these are the cultural benefits. Don't worry about that. The reality is they can all intermingle and sometimes they cross over between those areas. All right. Um, Okay. Let's tackle just a few examples that are written in the program delivery instructions. And, and I don't interact with this. Like I, I think of my history of, of doing C10s, it's by and large dominated by economic benefits. But let's just hit on just a couple so you can get an idea of what they're referring to uh, with this, you know, the social benefit, the significant social benefit. So they talk obviously about addressing health and safety threats to Canadians or permanent residents or, or promoting the improvement of a community's image and pride and a boost in local investment in heritage resources and, and amenities that support tourism. And I think of all the national parks all over across the country and, you know, trying to expand or even local communities who are, who are entering into some, you know, some project that's designed to attract people, you know, something that's really uniquely Canadian and, and really fits within, you know, they talk about here investments in heritage resources. Well, what fits into the category of a heritage resource? You know, could it be anything? You know, <laughs> okay. uh, now I'm really thinking outside the box, but I'll give you an example. Um, it seems like every small town in Saskatchewan or Alberta has something, right, that that is unique to them. Like um, before, some of you Newer practitioners will not recall the days when the Central Processing Center was in Vigerville, Alberta. And well, what was the, you know, what was the recognized um, kind of cultural feature of, 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 of Vigerville? It was this Easter egg, right? It was this big old Easter egg. And so I'm thinking, okay, so you've got someone who's got special skill and, you know, artistic skill in, in painting this egg or something. I don't I don't know, you know, this, that's uniquely, you know, a part of the heritage resource of Vegreville, Alberta. Well, maybe this individual is coming in and maybe they're coming and, you know, the community has hired this person to come in and do this. Well, C10 might work. And I know that's outside of the box, but this is the idea. Really, really think, really think outside the box. That's what you have to do with this. Um, some additional examples are developing products that will assist in, in improving environmental considerations, which is interesting, right? It's still of benefit. And, and then finally, you know, strengthening social inclusion in communities. So th- these are just some examples on the social side and, you know, the sky is really the limit. All right, let's jump to the final one, which is cultural benefit. And this one is way, way more broad than you could ever imagine. And uh, within the program delivery instructions, they make reference to the Canadian framework for culture statistics. And 
if we can understand basically um, what can be encompassed within these culture domains, this can help spur our creativity in determining whether or not someone that, you know, a company or a community wants to bring in may fit within this cultural benefit domain. And so it's all about developing creative solutions. And, uh, you know, when you look at this Canadian framework for culture statistics, they break it down into domains. And so let me just read off some, and I want you to just think about all of the previous work permits you've done for people in the past. Or if you're new to this, or if you're an HR manager and you're, you know, you, you're, you're just wondering, well, okay, I've got these workers coming in and everything pushes to an LMIA. Well, broaden your mind and just think about what's included in these culture domains. So I'll kind of go domain by domain and then give some of the, the subdomains just so you can see how it plays out. But literally, just let your mind open and think about all the previous LMIAs you did for, you know, from other other companies or communities where um, you've secured work permits and that was great. But just think about maybe C10 might have been an option. So, okay, first one, domain A, heritage and libraries. Okay, cultural heritage, natural heritage. And then the uh, domain B, live performance, which is not too difficult to, to envision, performing arts, festivals and celebrations. Uh, then next domain is visual and applied arts, which encompasses, you know, original visual art, um, art reproductions, photography, crafts, you know, even ancillary they have within within the visual and, and applied arts, they have advertising on that list. Now, I don't know if I would go so far as to say, well, this marketing, you know, manager is uh, really fits within the cultural domain of, of a C10. But hey, you have the ability to make that case. But not only advertising architecture, design, and you know, if they're a U.S. citizen, we've talked about Kusma and the, the professional category, and that's great, or if they're coming from the U.S. or Mexico, but maybe a C10 in these circumstances. It's all about creativity, but the program delivery instructions specifically reference this stuff, so it's fair game. All right, written and published works. That's the next cultural domain. So books, you know, periodicals, newspapers, other published works. Um, uh, next domain is audio, visual, and interactive media. So film and video, broadcasting, interactive media. You know, how, how far if you were to mix, you know, how much creativity with graphic design or, you know, when it, when you're encompassing advertising and kind of interactive media, uh, I don't know, is there something there? Maybe. And then the last sound recording. So maybe I need to consider getting C10s for my podcast, you know, editors, which to this point, I've never really hired an editor. I've just done it myself. But Hey, maybe the reason you're listening to this podcast and the sound is so good is because I've actually hired a podcast editor to help me. And maybe if they're really good and they do a lot, maybe there's a C10 benefit. But the challenge is, is Mark Holthy's Canadian Immigration Podcast of so much significant benefit to all of you and all the companies that listen to it that I can justify bringing in someone to make it sound a little bit better is, uh, is a significant cultural benefit. Hey, maybe, maybe, maybe if I hit the right officer at a port of entry, maybe that would work, right? So, you know, music publishing, sound recording, obviously, you know, that kind of is, all of these are just examples of the various cultural domains. And, and so um, just keep your, you know, keep your mind open. Think about all the possibilities. And as always, they provide specific examples in, in the program delivery instructions. And, and here's some of the examples that you would look to 
um, when you're trying to establish this significant cultural benefit. So have they been a recipient of a national or international award or, or patent? You know, and this works the same for economics, right? Um, if they're, you know, the significant economic benefit, you know, something you might point to is that, uh, you know, a patent that this person has been involved in developing that they're going to help to, in, you know, implement in a company in Canada. Well, is there some other kind of a patent or an international award that would really set this person up as being, you know, a really, um, a real expert in their field? Um, members of organizations requiring excellence of its members. Well, that is pretty darn broad, right? Uh, have been a member of a peer review panel or an authority to judge the work of others. Have been recognized for achievements and significant contributions to their field by peers. Sounds almost like, you know, government organizations, professional or business associations, right? That's super broad. Uh, they've made a significant or scholarly contribution to their field, uh, publications in academia, industry publications, things like that to really show that this person is truly special. Um, maybe they've been in a leading role in an organization and they, you know, have a distinguished reputation in their field. Uh, or finally, renowned for their, of course, artistic or cultural endeavors. So these are just some of the things. I love the examples because at least they get my mind wrapped around how potentially broad the argument can be made. After we've talked about all of this, I want to flip right back to the very, very beginning where that important section within the program delivery instructions for the officers, it kind of sets the tone. This authority should not be used for the sake of convenience, nor in any other manner that would undermine or try to circumvent the importance of the LMIA in the work permit process. And what are we getting at here? Is this person taking a job away from someone else? Are they filling a role that maybe a Canadian or permanent resident would really should have been given the first opportunity to take. That's really what we're getting at. And when you can honestly say, mm, come on, like this person is so special. There's really, you know, no one in Canada that can do what they do the way they do it. Then you're on the right track for a C10. Okay. I want to just pull the curtain back just a little bit. And this is something that hasn't, you know, previously it wasn't in the program delivery instructions. And I think the last one was last updated earlier in 2023. So from the date we do this, uh, I'm recording this podcast, not quite a year old, the current instructions. They used to be very, very bare bones. But now we actually have some of the instructions that are given to officers when they're reviewing the information within the GCMS. So it specifically talks about the application screen for the employer-specific work permits, which by and large is populated through the employer portal information that you provide, okay? So a couple things I want to point out here. And you can, and I'm just going to go through these fields because I, I think it helps to infuse in your mind, you know, how broad you can potentially make this. So just like any of these international mobility program work permits, you have the ability to, um, to request a geographic location that's a little bit broader, and so it, contemplate, it contemplates within the instructions of the officers that if there's more than one location, enter the main location in this field and the secondary location in remarks. So I, I think Alicia and I, in previous podcasts, we talked about the importance if you have a company who is, has many contracts, like a Canadian company who has many contracts or you know, clients all across the country, that you always have your main location. And then the secondary location, you say, you know, authorized to work at all client sites across Canada. And that would be the same case here. So you do have the ability to request this. And, uh, and when you do that, it just allows 
individual to be able to have a, a little bit more broad work permit to do what they need to do, as the case may be. As the case may be. Um, let's see, what else do we have here that's of note? Um, oh, when you're doing this, just like any other work permit, you need to make sure that you've selected the proper NAW code. And what we could be talking about intercompany transfers, we could be talking about reciprocal work permits, um, these significant benefits, any work permit that's employer-specific under the International Mobility Program, you, you very frequently, and I shouldn't say any, but there's a lot that require a specific NOT code associated with it. And if this person has any desire of becoming a permanent resident in the future, going through express entry, they're ruthless. So if you get it wrong now, it's going to be a real bugger for that person uh, who's trying to complete their, um, their express entry profile because they'll realize, oh, I need to match a substantial number of the main duties associated with this knock um, when I'm entering it into the express entry system. But if you're kind of lackadaisical and in how it is, some of you working in the big firms or in, in um, higher volume type practices, sometimes there's a tendency to say, oh, this person is this title. And so therefore the job description is going to be the same as anyone else that comes in through that title. But there might be some variation that you're not aware of that really pushes that person into a different not code entirely. And then they end up in a work permit that's not quite aligned with what they're doing and leaving aside the whole issue of, of compliance and, uh, and, um, and working up without authorization outside the confines of the work permit, you know, you just be careful with that. Okay. Um, and it's interesting when it comes to job titles, lots of people also get kind of stuck with, with job titles and the instructions to the officer is the job title will auto populate when the work permit is properly matched with the offer of employment. So you can see, generally speaking, if you get it right and you tell them what you want the not code to be, it's going to be a rare occasion where an officer comes back or one at the, the border or wherever and says, oh, I think you got the wrong not code. You know, in the past, we could maybe see that happening on occasion. And sometimes people would even submit work permit applications at ports of entry and wouldn't even list the not code. I never went down that road. I always told them which not code I wanted it to be, just in case they attribute it to be something that, you know, was different than what was intended. And then it's a different knock code. So be, be aware of that. And uh, yeah, other than that, you know, the, the, the specific fields that they're looking at are pretty, uh, pretty generic. And I don't know if there's really anything more. Um, when it comes to salary, officers are instructed to enter the amount per year as indicated in the offer of employment. Once again, the temporary workers wage in Canadian dollars a number of working hours. So these are the things that they're looking at. And why are we even talking about this? Why are we even considering it? It's because an officer will look at all of these details and say, does this make sense? If you're a highly specialized um, you know, CEO from uh, an industry in the U.S. that's rapidly expanding in Canada is going to create massive Canadian economic spinoffs. Um, and the wage that you're paying them is, you know, $50,000 Canadian a year. Well, you might have a little bit of trouble, you know, with an officer questioning how, you know, how specialized that, that knowledge really is and how significant the economic benefit corresponds with that kind of specialized or, or, you know, patent involving knowledge is. So be aware of that. Um, you know, obviously tier four and tier five occupations are rarely going to fit into a C10 level category. Often we tend to focus on, you know, really technical positions, um, managerial, executive level positions, but hey, tanning salon 
tanning salon manager? Eh, you just never know, right? You just never know. Okay. In addition to these general kind of parameters, they do set out some unique situations where you don't have to fight really hard to prove the significant benefit, uh, like the, the, um, the, um, significant benefit. And some of the examples like under the economic benefit world are rail grinder operators, rail welders, or other specialized track maintenance workers. This is an example here where the skill sets were simply not in Canada. And I did, you know, I've done a lot of work for railroads, you know, coming up to Canada and, and uh, for my whole practice virtually 20 years. And, and so in, in some circumstances, <clears throat> these types of uh, work permits, especially in the early days when we didn't have, the, you know, a lot of the companies set up operations in Canada and then use the intercompany transfer provisions. But for the significant benefit, we would use that when they would pop in because it's kind of important that, you know, rail maintenance workers are there to make sure that the rail lines, you know, that there isn't cracks in the lines or degradation in the lines that would result in a, a derailing of a train. And, and so um, makes sense that particular carve out could be there. Um, what else do they have for economic benefit? They've got interns with international organizations recognized under the Foreign Missions and International Organizations Act. Okay, well, that's pretty specific. Uh, C-SPAN above deck retrofit foreign workers. So those are some of the ones for economic benefits. Social benefit, uh, Caribbean agricultural liaison officers, uh, foreign physicians coming to work in Quebec is on the social benefit list. I wonder why it wouldn't be foreign physicians coming to work in many province across Canada, but Quebec's on the list there. Uh, foreign airline security guards, um, experts on mission working for the UN office in Canada. So these are examples of, of, uh, of social. And then finally, I love this one, cultural benefit, circus performers. Beautiful. So these are just some of the, you know, some of the things just to take into consideration um, as well when you are assessing this, because there may already be a carve out for unique situations where you just need to show that they fit into that kind of definition and you don't have to go to the same extent trying to make um you know carve out this brand new area i guess with respect to c10s so there you have it folks this was a little bit a little bit longer this uh, this episode i hope it was helpful um you know as a final wrap up i guess uh, one thing i do want to point out just at the very end is that more often than not i use c10s as bridges you know, to bridge the gap until an LMIA can be obtained. And in the previous program delivery instructions, that was one of the things that that was specifically mentioned in it. It's gone now. But the whole concept of, you know, if there isn't time or availability to get an LMIA, then maybe you consider C10. And one of the examples that I see a lot of is C-suite level positions, senior executives um, who have been recruited through a headhunter and now are you know, working or will be working for a publicly traded company, well, they've already gone through a very extensive candidate search. Clearly, they looked for, you know, someone that is going to need significant skill sets, managerial or otherwise, for a particular industry and for a particular country, or a company, I should say. And so, um, you know, when the headhunters are going through this process, there's somewhat of an understanding that there's a reason why they had to choose the person that they were choosing. And, uh, the, you know, because... The say, you know, the future success of a company is resting on it. And in those circumstances, going back after you've already identified someone, which is usually the case, hey, Mark, 
we've identified a new CEO for our company and um, we need to get a work permit for them. Okay, great. So in those circumstances, are you going to do the same thing you do with all the other LMIAs? Well, we need to re-advertise and try to find a Canadian. No. In these circumstances, when timelines are tight, it's let's say it's a publicly traded company and they need the person to start right away and there's huge economic benefit having that person there, including the retention of jobs, et cetera, right? Then often we will consider a C10 and then maybe later consider, you know, applying for an LMIA if there's an opportunity to do so. Um, but the the beauty of this C10 is it's employer specific. So once they've worked for a year in Canada, then they're going to get an extra 200 points if they're a C-suite level position, you know, they're a double O. So, um, under the uh, the new tier system. So keep that in mind. And we use it a lot in those circumstances to, to apply to bridge gaps. Now, I'll point out one last one as a little kind of finishing piece before we wrap it up. And that is individuals who are in a situation where they need to get an extension on their work permit. They need to be able to get at least another two months or, you know, one or two months of work experience to meet whatever threshold they need for permanent residence. Well, sometimes, and Leisha and I have talked about this, people will just file this generic open work permit application knowing that they don't qualify for it. Well, C10 is pretty broad. And if you have an employer who's on board that's willing to be creative and and try to justify why a particular worker is really important to them and why a C10 should be issued, <coughs> excuse me, uh, sometimes we would like to go down that route, register the employer portal and then file a C10 to at least give a fair shot at a legitimate work permit. So sometimes we will use it in that fashion, but it's not a case of just someone filing their own C10 work permit because you need an employer and an employer portal job offer registration. So there we have it. All right, guys, that was the overview of C10, probably addressing things in ways that maybe haven't been addressed before, but it's all about being creative and uh, and thinking outside of the box. Thanks so much for listening. Um, the next episode that we have coming up, um, Alicia will be back joining me. We're going to continue on with our, our business immigration series. There's a number of specialized work permits we want to touch on. And uh, if you have an idea for a future podcast, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, the previous episode, uh, I think it was 127. It was great to have, um, uh, let's see, I think we had, who do we have? I think it was Pentea. Yeah, I think it was Pentea Jafari. And uh, she was talking about the self-employed uh troubles that she has been experiencing with the class action lawsuit uh, that she has filed against IRCC for some pretty unfair treatment of self-employed workers. So uh, yeah, so Pente, uh, just like that, if you have a topic and she reached out and said, hey Mark, can we, um, can we try to get the message out here? Because we're getting no justice for <laughs> these self-employed applicants um, and the systematic refusals. And that was actually the second, the second version. So if you have an idea and you'd love to join me and, and you're a, a good person who gives back and it's not all just about promoting yourself, but adding value and helping, you know, raise the bar within our lovely immigration field, I would love to have you join me. So just send an email to mark at canadianimmigrationinstitute.com and uh, yeah, make your pitch. I'd love to hear from you. All right, we'll wrap it up. And thanks so much for joining me today.
Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holpilaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing. Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.jorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code HOLTHYJOURNEY10. That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast.